0: Okay, guys, let's get started. Um, The uh, internet was going to be out, it probably is back on now, but uh, for an upgrade. So I kind of had to quickly hurry because I was going to use the internet for something. So I ended up just randomly printing a few things out and I have some more in case we get to it. But the thing I printed out, it is really, uh, really dark because it's actually a copy of a copy. So, this book is actually from 1865, and it was reprinted uh, within the last 10 years or something, but um, this is such an interesting book, 1865. Does anyone know when the Synod was started? Is there a synod? Yeah. So, we have something in English, uh, kind of before a lot of Lutherans came to the United States. Anyways. It's Luther's Letters to Women." Go figure, right? Yeah. Well, I found the book, so I'm, I'm, I was super stoked. But um, it, it's, it was pub- it's whatever reprinted, I guess, is the technical, by this company who goes around finding like old books that are public domain now, and they feel like it's still important to and they just randomly print them. Kessinger Legacy reprints. So, that, anyways, so this book is filled with little letters from Luther, and some of them are really funny. Actually, the one I, I the second one from to Elizabeth of Brunswick. Um, so, okay. So, by the way, it's a little confusing because, uh, so the first letter to Mary, Queen of Hungary, ends on page twenty, and I didn't want to cut out page 21 so page 21 is just don't don't read that's that's worthless don't regard that and then page 96 too just disregard just that too I couldn't make like two copies because by the second copy it would have been pitch black so I was like okay I'll just have to explain this when I come <laughs> this morning because uh, I couldn't figure out how to do it without yeah so this is dark enough I made sure all the lights were on this morning so that we could see it. <laughs> yeah. All right, but the uh, second letter is page 97, and that's to the Duchess Elizabeth Brunswick. Anyways, it's a fun one because it just shows Luther's just writing to say thank you for all that you do, and um, I'm sending, I'm sending uh, cuttings of mulberry and fig trees. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Um, but anyways, the reason why I show that... Well, the first one for Mary Queen of I always want to say Mary Queen of Scots. Mary Queen of Hungary is a, a little bit more substantial because it's actually um, in reference to... he uh, Martin Luther kind of dedicates uh, four psalms, translations and interpretations to Mary Queen of Hungary. And I think it's made reference in in the handout I sent to you guys or gave you guys 2 weeks ago. So this is actually directly related to what we read today. But um this letter to Mary Queen of Hungary is basically it's supposed to be encouraging. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But again, that just kind of shows you you know, so part of part of our deal in studying women of the Lutheran Reformation is is to well, Two, two main things I wanted to do. One is to expose everybody to the the voices that probably have not been heard and kind of learn from them, not to kind of go back in time, but just to see what we can learn from history and then how we can incorporate the same thing in our present. But, um, but part of learning our history, too, because, you know, one of the things is we confidently go forward believing we know what it is to be a Lutheran. Well there's a large voice that has been not heard of Lutheranism. And th- this was my kind of small part to kind of stir the pot and broaden our understanding of Lutheran history. And um, because that, I mean, so this letter from Luther really shows that, you know, these women weren't outliers, but these were women who were in convert- conversation with kind of the mover and shakers of what we think is Lutheranism. And... Uh, very influential in fact again eighteen sixty five it's a cheap book cause it's you know it's it's basically like a copy you know like I mean literally you look at it it's a photocopy oh. <laughs> so um if you actually read it it's, it's so interesting Luther's letters to these all these different women from uh, like thank you very much for your donation We'll use it exactly like you said. Because even though we really would like to use it this way, since it's your money, we'll let you know, we'll use it your way. To, um, well, here, yeah, so here's one Barbara Leischnerin. Luther endeavors to relieve her doubts on predestination. So some are pastoral, some are to his mother, to his wife. This is so interesting. And some are, you know, like, hey, I'm sending you this gift of mulberry and fig trees. And then some are, you know, really, really more substantial about Scripture. Okay. All right, so let's kind of turn into the little packet that we, uh, that I gave to you. Um, So, Elizabeth Kuziger, although it's it's written more in uh, Elizabeth... Kruzsegurinen. She has the hymn 402 in our hymnal. We sang that, you know, for the last, for in Epiphany. Um, she was a pro- prolific hymn writer, but we only have one of her hymns in our hymnal. Come on now. There probably should be more. Um, she, uh, okay, great. So she was very close with Luther. Um, now in reading her a song in praise of Christ, didn't you guys, so what do you guys uh, thought of the, so, I mean, these are kind of action packed, uh, these are kind of interesting. So any, any, any responses to this hymn that, uh, you know, it loses its beauty of course, because it's in English, not in German, but so (laughs) you might, don't forget this was originally in German. Yeah, that's on page 78.
1: 78 and
0: Yeah. A song in praise of Christ. Ein Lapsenk von Christo. That's not how you say it, but we'll have Krista give us that if you want. Um, so one of my... In- okay, so when I first got this book, and I was like, oh, I'm excited to read this. I was hooked from the beginning because I love the first verse. Lord Christ, God's only Son, grew out of the heart of his Father in eternity. Man, I'm hooked already. Isn't that great? Beautiful. As it is written in the New Testament. I have a lot of things written down. Did I? I can't remember if I wrote them after I made copies. Okay. Do I have anything written there? Okay.
1: Unless it's an invisible angel.
0: No, it's not. Okay. He is the morning star whose brilliant rays extend far beyond the other shining stars. Um, I I don't know where that's written in the New Testament. So I was wondering where in the world that was, but I didn't have enough time. But I'm assuming he's he's making reference to... I don't know. She is making reference to him. Nobody thought the same thing? Okay, great. All right, now one of the interesting things about this hymn is it really demonstrates, because the... Uh, the hymns often were written for personal, personal use. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, I wish. Maybe you guys do. Do you guys write? I don't, do you guys write songs? But you know, if you had a bad day, you're going to write a lament, or had a great day, you're going to write a song. I mean, I'm sure people do that. Maybe Susan Brown does that. I don't know. But uh, that was really interesting. So one of the one of the things about these songs that we've actually read, not all of these were written for publication. And so uh, what's interesting for me to read those is that they're very personal. And so they're kind of devotional in that aspect. But also, too, they reveal something about kind of feminine perspective. And, you know, that first verse about how Christ grew... So it, it's, it's trying to, you know, declare the second article, right? God of God, you know, begotten... Yeah. S- second article, the Nicene Creed. Oh, I'm, I'm assuming so yeah right, so it's not a direct quotation right it's yeah yeah no no, absolutely also too I, it was one of the interesting things I thought maybe perhaps, and I didn't get a chance to kind of go into the Greek of uh, the father and the prodigal son, yeah, so the whole notion of this father and the this close loving relationship between the father and the son, but the whole point though is is that um, what what 's interesting is that these the the uh, kind of this perspective of You know, devotional use of uh, these songs means that you know these women are just expressing their faith, and that this faith is is kind of inspiring and and very, I would say, analogous to what we read back in the fall of Katharina Regina von Greifenberg, You know, this kind of this mystical understanding of the faith or this um, very kind of uh, bodily connection. So, um, I, I think, though, I, I included one of them where it was specifically written for a hymn book, right? I, it was a teacher, right? Um, uh, but, so anyways, so this one right here, A Song in Praise of Christ, is, is you know, one of these where, like, it, it's about her, God's love for her and her returning that same love back. The um, third verse, especially... And and provide okay so so that we can taste here on earth this is page seventy nine your sweetness in the heart and feel thirsty after you all the time.
1: That's
0: yeah, that's exactly right. So prayer, poetry, song. Of course, you know back in the old the old red hymnal. <laughs> I just met with a pastor yesterday, and um, he's been five months in his new parish, and they're. Uh, You know, our new hymnal has, like, almost the whole red hymnal in it. I mean, you know, okay. But that congregation, they had a fire, by the way. Lost all their hymnals. Are they going to buy the new one? No. They're going to make copies of the old one. (laughs) He's he's chuckling. But anyways, I mean, which is okay. It seems kind of a waste. But anyways... um, Uh, do you know how, uh, I think almost all the hymns end with amen at the end, right? So, uh, this is really important for us as we think about hymns. Hymns are often just prayers, right? So, not only are they um, for learning, you know, we're going to sing this hymn and learn about the catechism, but they're also, obviously, praising and praying. So, um, this is you get this in this first hymn by Elizabeth Krusiger. I might just say Kruger because it's just easier for me. And since she's not alive, I'm not going to hurt her feelings. Okay. All right, now the other one too is in verse 4. Drawing strength from your own might, make our heart turn toward you and blind our physical senses so that they do not go astray from you. Um, Now, which I th- is on my mind because John chapter three is this gospel reading for this Sunday. So there's this notion of how do we understand our our how do we understand or receive faith? Do we receive it through through the word and sacrament, which then of course involves our senses, right? We hear. But is it strictly just our physical senses or is it senses transformed by God's word? And so she's getting into that in this verse here. Um, Because, you know, I think people kind of misunderstand, you know, God's word, the Bible, is, it's a human word. I mean, these are words that humans can understand. But yet, these are precisely, you know, God is in the word. So just like God is in the water and God is in the, the bread and wine, God is in the word. So um, we have to understand that um, even though it's not... Because, you know, if you have a non-Christian who comes in and they're like, yeah, you're reading from some book, a, a non-Christian could very well say this is just like any other book. In fact, there's a lot of non-Christians who say that. It's just another book. But we, of course, believe that it's not, we don't comprehend that book just with our physical senses, but with our faithful senses. So even though it's a real, like, I can really feel the word, you know, hit my eardrum, and I don't doubt it, right? That's, right, words make my eardrum vibrate, right? Um, I don't doubt that. I just I just receive it in faith, and then that uh, gives me, obviously... The hope of salvation. All right. And then last but not least, the the fifth verse for me is just death and resurrection in real time. So good. Give us death through your goodness. How many times did anybody say that this morning? Dear Lord, give me death through your goodness. Awaken us through your grace. Which, okay, so, right. We all want to die, but we don't want to die our death. We want to die Jesus' death. And we get that in baptism, Romans chapter 6. I mean, isn't that great? Yeah. Awaken us through your grace. Awaken, of course, is get up, resurrect. Subdue the old creature in us. Okay, great. So we are, so we're saved, right? We are saved, but yet we're still sinners, so we still have this battle going on in us. Subdue the old creature in us. This, is, uh, this last verse, I think, is so... Um, it is this simul, simul justus es picator. Did anyone just fall asleep right there? What? Simultaneously justified and sinner. Or saint and sinner. All right, subdue the old creature in us so as to give life to the new one. So we have an old Adam and we have a new Adam. Sounds like Paul. Oh, yeah. It's like Elizabeth read her Bible, isn't it? It's amazing. <laughs> May this happen while we still live, oh, to our senses and all our physical desires, so that we have cause to give, our, to give you our thanks. Okay, so, you know, one of the things about how we see salvation is we believe salvation begins when we die, or after we die. But, of course, we have been resurrected. Romans chapter 6 actually says um, we have died and risen again. So this is a past tense reality that we are resurrected in Jesus. So, actually, salvation and eternal new life starts, it's started already. So the word eternal, I I probably said this before. So there's a difference between eternal and everlasting, kind of in the technical sense. Everlasting is a very kind of time-related or chronological word. Eternal is not just a chronological word. Eternal life is actually time and space. So there is a uh, quantity and a quality into eternal life. So as you... In Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11-ish, you know, Paul says, do you not know that all have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? And then those who have also been resurrected and walk in the newness of life. So there is this notion that death is behind us, and because death is behind us, now we live very faithfully in Christ which are marked by the fruits of the Spirit and you know, this confidence that we have as children of God. But the thing is, though, is that that's all based on Christ. Because it's not our life, it's Christ's life. So, of course, Christ always gets the credit. And that's why we always are continually... So that we have cause to give you our thanks. It's a life of thanksgiving, a life of gratitude. Because anything that is good that happens in our life always gets, God gets credit. But part of the resurrection is that we are living in Christ. So we are participating in eternal life. Meaning, love actually exists in the world. Good things happen in the world. Not because of us, but because of God. And God enlivens us to do this. So this is always uh, John chapter 3. Those who uh, uh, those who love the light uh, do things in the light so that all may know that... Uh what happened to my Bible? Did I put my Bible down somewhere? I had a Bible in chapel, right? Yeah, okay. Oh, somewhere. John chapter 3. I should actually get this right this time. I'm just chit-chatting about things. So that last verse really gets to death and resurrection in in real time, or like in history, like in our real lives. So it's not just an abstraction. I mean, this is, this is part of the great thing about uh, being Lutheran, is that uh, salvation is not just lived in your brain, but it's actually lived in your brain and your heart and your life. And so... John chapter three, and I believe it's verse twenty-one. Yeah. All right. So John chapter three, verse twenty-one. So this is this is whole notion is that like as we live eternal life, eternal life is already now. So it's it's like these, um, it, it it's this. Uh, so even though we are both saint and sinner at the same time. We, we are uh, living in hope and grace. So because of that then, and we're always receiving from God life and salvation, we are uh, participating in love and good works. Right? So faith and good works go together. Good works grow out of faith. Um, but then when any good is done in the world the credit always still goes to God because he's the one who's working. So verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So one of the things as is, is Christians, especially as Lutherans, we, we engage in these good works with a good conscience or a clear conscience because you no know, God has given us to do. So that's kind of a doctrinal vocation. But in those good works that are done, we never receive credit because they should be painfully obvious that God is present in them. But the thing is that we are doing them. Like, these things are being done by us. But the more precise word would be with us. God is, God is using us. So, um,. Anyway, so that, that's in that last verse right there. I, mean, I, I love that last verse. I, I really wish... Um, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, Kathy.
1: Um, when I was reading it, I was thinking a lot about my granddaughter. When when babies are born, their development happens so quickly, it just kind of like, boom. Yeah, right. It kind of just blows right past you. But when it's arrested because of brain damage right the the development is like it's just this unfolding Mm. thing and it really speaks to me yeah because it it slows it down and you can just kind of watch it unfold like our yeah working out our salvation sort of yeah is that that the that the brain, the therapist explains that the, that the brain is trying to find a, a good path to go, Yeah. because the old one isn't gonna work anymore. But that it, in normal baby development, you know, they're just laying there going like this. Yeah. And then the brain slowly goes to the shoulders. And, then, and they get more control over.
0: Yeah, right, sure.
1: Like down the arm. And then the babies are more deliberate. Mm-hmm. Try to reach, but they don't have it down to their fingertips. And then they finally get; they can grab
0: something. Yeah, right.
1: Like this, and, and so. But that when we have babies, it like happens so fast. You're just like, whoa! Last week they were just doing this. Yeah, right. Edith, it's like you see it slowly happening, and I just think that is that is so neat. hmm You know, just so slow to, you know. <laughs> waiting for the word to just get down to my elbow, and I'm like 67! Right. And 67. Right. <laughs> but but that it just blesses me so much.
0: Yeah. Right. Isn't that great? It
1: is. It's awesome. So I am reading this thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, some <laughs> of the old creatures because you know Edith wants to like keep her hand like this, and you know perfectly happy to like use her foot to pick something up with the good hand. But it's like no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this yeah like no right and that's like me yeah no lord <laughs> i'm doing it this way i'm
0: sorry <laughs> i think it's great all right well so this is okay this is also part of the reason why i wanted to do what we for this whole this i mean this is a great example because um you know we as we spend time with the you know the women that we've kind of studied is that we yeah hopefully you've been inspired and touched by them because uh, I know I have. So I'm, I'm, I'm. All right, uh, Mary, Queen of Hungary. Mary, Queen of Hungary. Very interesting woman. By the way, this, this hymn, the Magik um, und gluch nicht was included in a uh, Lutheran hymn book in 1529, Joseph Klutz hymn. In fact, this hymn is super influential that Philip Nicolai ripped off the front line of um, first line, like in his own hymn. And there's several hymns that use Mary, Queen of Hungary's beginning. So, you know, back in those days, nobody, there wasn't any copyright infringement. So it was actually a sign of like, oh, hey, this hymn must have been pretty good because somebody copied it. So it's really interesting because, did you guys read the introduction She never became officially Lutheran. So this is a very, she's very interesting for me because she never saw Luther as, like, well, just, she just saw him as a faithful Christian. And so in her reign, she was very, you know, friendly to Lutherans. Um, But, of course, her brother was the emperor, right? And so she did abide by the emperor's rule, so you had this kind of strange situation where she was never found to be unfaithful to the emperor. Although, um, I, I can't remember if this is in the introduction or in this other thing I, I learned from. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was her brother specifically or her brother's advisors were like, hey, your sister is not helping us because he is, she is friendly to those heretics. And if you read the letter I just gave to you later or whatever, Luther makes reference to being called a a Lutheran heretic. I I think it's in that one. There's another another letter to Mary Queen of Hungary. But um, so for her, though, I mean, it's this whole like trying to be faithful to God's word. And in this song too, you know, or uh, she writes the song because her husband dies, killed by the Muslim invaders. So, which again is I can't believe that people do that. That's amazing. I'm I'm always impressed with people who can be musical. Um, But she writes the song as the means to which she kind of fights back her sadness and her misery. And in the song itself, there's a constant trust that God will protect her in the long run, even though he's allowed this to happen and she's upset with the whole thing, to say the least. She knows that God is, is still in charge. And working for her, um and the one thing that really comforts her is god's word um, yeah i mean it's it's a it's a really nice hy- hymn because uh she talks about well so verse do you guys have anything to say about this hymn? I got several things to say, but
1: she seems a little bit yes,
0: isn't that realistic? I love that I mean how many times you know when you know something Tragic happens to you. It doesn't really kind of cause you to be like, "What in the world, God? What's your problem?" Um, I, I would say that's realistic. I mean, I mean, Jesus does it, so why can't I do it, right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, "Lord, hey, take this away from me. and my will, but Your will be done." So, this is, I think, also reflected fact, so I, I, uh, so I wrote down a few things. First of all, it sounds like a psalm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So she's she's kind of wrestling with the hiddenness of God and vindication. God, where are you? So, um, you know, in the first verse, God is not far away. He's just hiding. For a short time until he strangles <laughs> those who deprive me of his words. So she believes that God's going to vindicate things. She has great faith in God to do what he says he will do. That's code language for until he strangles those who deprive me of his words. Yeah, you know, it's, I just, okay. Did anybody have any questions about that? I didn't want to get into all that. I mean, unless you wanted to. But. Yeah, Krista.
1: At that time, it was kind of persecution
0: Mm persecution against the Lutherans. Well, well, yeah, so slow down, though, because we've got to remember in the historical context, it wasn't the Lutherans, but the the, the Muslims. The Turks. They would say the Turks. So, she is making reference to the fact that her husband died at the hands of the Turks and they want to squash God's word. So, she understands her rule and very kind of real strict Christian understanding. But, um, she knows that you know, God's going to take care of things. So, yeah, so it's not much of the religious persecution in terms of, like, within Christianity, but it's the, the Turks and the uh, Holy Roman Empire. And it
1: is standing before Vienna,
0: you know. That's right. That, yeah, I think they're on their way. Because this is 1529, right? Yeah. Because they get to Vienna after this. Yeah, right? no well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. They were on their way towards this. Yeah, this is on their way. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I meant to go look that up because I think you reminded me. Yeah. Well, so do you guys know that? Okay, so let, let's make sure that we, everybody knows. So uh, the Ottoman Empire was marching through Europe. Um, they went through Hungary, and they were on their way to Vienna. And they got stopped, Well, I mean, pretty much at the gates of Vienna. But they never sieged Vienna. Um, isn't there a story about, like, bakers or something? There's, like, this whole, like, because uh, they, they use the tunnels, right? The, the, the people from Vienna were able to use, they had all these tunnels. I can't remember. Watch Rick Steves. He's got a little, nice little story about, yeah, okay. A lot of my European history is known through Rick Steves, so. Okay. Um, anyways, I think it's a great, it's a great little hymn especially for those who might be suffering. All right. Um, Elizabeth Brunswick, if you could just kind of turn your little packet, it'd be page 85. She's interesting for a variety of reasons, which I think mainly are just all in the, um, a little introduction. But she, by far, was one of the most influential politically speaking most influential of of the time her and then elizabeth uh, brandenburg or Saxony. I can't remember but um she uh, the uh this one elizabeth uh she she drafted a, a church order with the help of you know of people but um, super, super interesting. So she was very influential. But again, it's the song of a mother. You know, so that's, that's, it's interesting. It's very intimate, I think. Um, but yeah, she's got a big, she's got a very strong connection. The, uh, opening line of each hymn is just really great. Oh, God, my Lord. Oh, God, my Lord. Oh, God, my Lord. Over and over again. I mean, I just... I think that's so great. Then, of course, verse 2. Did I write ouch in yours? I wrote ouch in mine. They think they can destroy your words. Therefore, please eliminate them all. Yeah! I don't, I, don't, I don't pray that way. Anybody pray that way in here? yeah I, it's, I think that's good actually, that we don't pray that way, but um, they did back in those days. So it, it's a very sad it's a very sad um, hymn, but it's a prayer for help. So again, I think it's very realistic. Um, so if you go then and then into the uh, page 88, 89, I mean there's so many inter- I mean it's a long hymn, right? Aren't you glad that we don't have 18 verse hymns? <laughs> Just testing. If you are very happy, then we could change that, but... <laughs> there is a couple in our hymnal, right? I mean, the old TLH, though. There's several of those long doozies. Um, in fact, you know, uh, I would, Susan would probably know more about this than me, but most of the hymns actually in our hymnal have a lot more verses to them. Yeah, I mean, the ones from the Reformation time. So, you might say, oh, I know this hymn real well. Well, you only know like <laughs> a quarter of it, actually. All right. Um, d- does anyone have anything, anything to say about these hymns? I got a few things I wanted to finish off with. So, did anybody like that hymn that was, I, I, did I give you the hymn that wasn't by a Lutheran woman? Uh, Margaretha, Duchess of Anhalt. Yeah. yeah okay. One hundred one. I I just I I liked that was a very interesting hymn. That was like a, you're like reading a. It's a thick hymn. That was less personal. I felt like. Page one hundred two. Well, it starts at one hundred one, one
1: hundred two, one hundred three. Twenty verses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: But I mean, this is like a uh, kind of like a rendition, right? I mean, you could you could sing this on uh, during Holy Week. I just that's why I thought it was so interesting to include. All right. All right. Well, one of the interesting things about this book, and this kind of my relates to my petition I said a few weeks ago. If you have any daughters who are interested in German or medieval history or Reformation history, or a son, by the way, uh, there is a wealth of resources that have not been, like, actually studied or translated on specifically the, the women poets and hymn writers of the Reformation time. Uh, You know, some of it was because of the personal nature of the hymns, so people, you know, but I think I don't know why it hasn't been really kind of mined or explored. I would love, I would love to someone to do that, because just our few minutes today exploring these hymns really kind of reveal a very depth and another kind of interesting perspective that I feel like would be helpful for us to kind of sing and know and learn. Um, So, anyways, encourage your young daughters to, you know, study boring stuff. So, I find it very fascinating. All right, so, anyways, so what have we learned over the last few months? First of all, there's definitely a female voice in Lutheran Reformation history. Um, you know, women were accepted as authors, especially as especially as hymn writers. Yeah, I mean, especially. But also, you know, we saw in Argula von Grimbach this this kind of defense of of the faith. You know, so in letter writing, um, but then also too in meditative works later on with Katharina uh, Regina von Greifenberg. But um, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to do is, you know, it, it's we should examine the past with kind of, like, courage. You know, like, this idea, like, hey, we shouldn't be afraid of what's been written, or maybe not written, and figure out, like, how women have contributed to, kind of, Lutheran history. One of the interesting things, too, about the, how women contributed to Lutheran history is on a different, different level than, like, Martin Luther or Philip Melanchthon. But, of course, you know, as Christians, we believe that we, men and women have that's why a chapel I read, Genesis 1. God created man. Uh, God created man in His image. He created them male and female, male and female, He created them. And then he said to them, uh, "Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it." This little section in Genesis 1 is a template for the reality that men and women are collateral. Remember the term collateral and dignity. They're fully human. They're not lacking anything. But they're fully human precisely as male and female. So they're complementary. Which doesn't, there's no hierarchy in that, in the sense that one is you know, more important or less important. But that complementarity needs to be heard in, in its fullness to get the, the richness of the image of God in, in the church. So when you downplay or ignore part of that, then the whole body actually suffers. And so that's you know part of the reason why I wanted to take a look at this Lutheran history is that there actually is a history, even though we don't know about it. And to really not explore it would be to, kind of detrimental to our humanity. Um, and then also too, like then then we like have no place going forward. If we don't really know our past, we can't really go forward. And so, you know, again, hopefully, we're just kind of opening the door to things. Um, but, uh, like I said, I mean, just these examples from today and the hymn writing, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a great it's a great thing to kind of to mine to, to explore. Mine. I always keep using the word mine. Maybe that's too masculine of a phrase, but you know, because men are caves and women are oceans. To those who. If anyone's ever heard of pastor Nelson wedding sermon, that phrase is going to come up. Okay. So. Have I never said that in this room before? Women are oceans and men need to be deep, deep sea divers to go explore and okay. Men are caves. Women have to be spelunkers. Because, you know, the thing about caves is you think there's nothing there. (laughs) Until you get in there and then you realize, oh, there's a whole life ecosystem in there. Yeah, you just have to spend a little time in there and figure it out. Yeah, so women's hearts are oceans, men's hearts are caves. Yep. You know, well, you got to figure it out, you know. I'm just saying, you know... Well, I shouldn't say that. Again, this is a man talking, so, you know, for me, it's like, you know, women are like, whoa, it's this amazing... God made these people, and I'm enraptured by them, which means confused most of the time. But, (laughs) um, you know, it's... it's, Yeah, you got to explore. So, but the men's, you know, men's kind of like, nothing here, man, you know? Men are so simple, which is I think true, but yeah, you gotta spend a little time with it, you know. The other way I think about it too is uh, people who come to Illinois and be like, "Oh, it's so flat. There's not, you know, there's no mountains." I'm like, you just have to spend. A little, you gotta get closer to the earth to see the, you know, the amazing thing that God has done here in Illinois. I mean, Colorado, you you know, you don't even look down, you're always looking up. Well, you got make, in Illinois. You got to get, you got to get down in the dirt, find how amazing it is. Because I'll tell you what, if you compare the dirt between Illinois and Colorado, Colorado's dirt boring. <laughs> Can't grow anything there. But Illinois, rich, beautiful, just so many great nutrients down in there. So, at least that's the way I, that's the way I, uh, you know, tell myself that it's okay to live here, Krista.
1: But, um, I, I uh, disagree a little bit in, in this way that um, men and women are not created equal You're not literally.
0: I did say they're equal I said they're different that's very important for you because you can't don't listen don't hear something I didn't say so that's important because
1: okay, okay. because
0: they are different that I, yeah 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 and that's the word complementarity by definition means different so this is this is so important because I just had this discussion earlier with a college kid, who a woman who is very like she's she's struggling with this this idea because she understands human relationships almost entirely in terms of power, um, which is fundamentally anti Christ. So like for instance, who is the who is the ult- well okay Mary is the ultimate disciple because you know she's the one who lives in union with Christ, so by grace, of course, I mean God chose her, but the thing is though her 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 supremacy is defined precisely in servant servant service, which of course is Christ himself so this is the upside down nature of Christianity is that the one who reigns is the one who serves now of course if you you say that in a kind of a political context, that sounds like Well, of course Mary would be, because, you know, she's a woman, she's a doormat, because she has to be a servant. That's, that's, that's actually wrong, is that, um, so God chose woman to bring himself into the world. Now, of course, you might say, oh, well, that's because only women, you know, well, God can do whatever he wants, but perhaps that was part of his plan in creating woman. Right to show the place of 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 woman in our life together. So, this is the thing: is that so men and women are equal insofar as they are fully human, but they are different. So they're collateral, but they're like uh, uh, die unity. Die right too. Die die unity. There, there's two. Un- so the thing is, though, and the thing is the way God created them is man is not fully himself without living in relationship with to woman. And woman is not fully herself until she lives in relationship with man. Now, that, that you might say, so, of course, that doesn't mean you have to be married. I mean, this is just the reality of us living together in a community. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so, Krista, this is important for us because if we aren't clear on that, people can misuse what Christians believe. To so one is to say, oh, Christianity just wants to keep women, like, down. Or the, the flip side of the same thing is, you know, the patriarchy. There's no, there's no patriarchy in the church. There's only Jesusarchy in the church. Jesus is in charge of the church. Okay. So, man and women, no matter how you shake it out, is have to live in line with Jesus, okay? But there are gifts that are given to manhood and womanhood that are meant to live in complementary to, to one another. So, unfortunately, people will say then, uh, so like, for instance, of course, it comes to the office of the holy ministry. It's everyone wants to get to that, all right? Um, but the, I mean, if you look at Christian history, by the way, you know, there's periods of Christian history where, um, like those who were not pastors actually held more sway in the church than pastors. So that's another reason why you want to study church history is to, because I think everyone believes that, oh, those who are pastors have all the sway in the church, well, that's not true, plus again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of service right um but but the office of the Holy ministry is understood in terms of fatherhood and we talked about this before many many moons ago, but if the pastor is fundamentally understood in terms of spiritual father fatherhood then then you know man is. Best exemplifies that, but that does not mean that a woman has no place in the church. But has a robust place in the church that we've already talked about with Argula von Grimbach, and then the differing gifts that we've already talked about, the the place that, the 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 place of women learning their scripture, and then teaching others of the scripture, whether it be through their I mean this has all been through writings, right, um, but then through just normal relationships. I mean,
1: yeah.
0: This is just, just, you're ignoring, so, yeah, so unfortunately when the discussion is understood in terms of power and hierarchy rather than, you know, complementarity, then things kind of get muddled up, so we have to kind of slow down, so... That was a little bit muddled up right there, but, yeah. Yeah, Krista.
1: But, um, Pastor, perhaps you can just only, you know, because um, uh, why, uh, why don't the uh, Missouri Center uh, would allow uh, women in the, uh, the...
0: To be a pastor? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, is, of course, we grounded in, in First Timothy. First Timothy, the, the qualifications of a bishop or an overseer, and uh, that, you know, that makes reference to a husband of one wife. Of course, it's written to, as, a, as a man. Now, the question would be not so much, that, that's not the end of the story, though. Like, why would God do that? Like, you have to ask these questions. I mean, for some people, that's enough. Oh, the Bible says so. Well, for me, that's not enough. Well, no, why would God say that? What's the theological framework behind that? And that's rooted in, in um, well, in the office of Christ, First, but then also in creation, the Genesis chapter one. And so again, the office of the pastor, though, if you understand it in terms of power, the conversation is already over because you've already misunderstood it. Actually, this is interesting because I was thinking about this because um, somebody this is analogous or related to your comment, yeah. is somebody asked, well why do, you, why do the pastors commune themselves?" And they see it as like, oh, what, do you think you're better than me? I, I just want to ask you, if you go to a, a very rich person's house, what do they have? They have servants, right? And the servants serve those there, right? What do the servants do back in the kitchen? Yeah, they feed themselves. The person who came to me, I'm like, hello. The pastor communes themselves because they are the servants. You're, you know, you are the ones, we're here for you. So this person completely misunderstood. Oh, because you're different. You're doing something different, so that must mean you're, you think you're special. No, it's precisely the opposite. You're special, and that's why I'm doing this. They completely misunderstood it. Now, of course, they were mad already. They didn't really like that answer because they thought they really wanted to be vindicated. But I was like, you just have to wrestle with it. Come back. You think about it for a while and come back to it. This, I mean, so I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, oh, like we, I could bring this up in women's Bible study. Nah, I won't. It's kind of boring. It's something silly. But um, so I did. But it's just like so. If you have this complete, this fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be servant, then, then the whole conversation. You know, just doesn't you can't you got to get back to square one before you can have a a conversation. So, um, so the 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 office of the holy ministry, as it's kind of designated for a husband of one wife, for man, is not to hold power or part of the patriarchy, but it's about the notion of spiritual fatherhood, whose primary purpose is then to serve and love those around them. Um, which, of course, then we got a whole nother level of conversation because then it might expose how our fathers weren't really that great or maybe my own, you know, relationships need to be re... You know, and we don't like talking about that, but... So it's a big, long conversation that I think people are... Sometimes they just want to have it, like, be about power, and if it's about power, though, then, yeah, anybody can do it. But if it's about what Scripture says and why would cr- God make it that way, it's because it's a spiritual fatherhood, and fatherhood is reserved for men, just like motherhood is reserved for women. I mean, I can never be a mom, so. It's a descendant from Peter,
1: mm-hmm. um, that goes
0: down. Yeah, right. But I mean, that's it, that, that's that's all part and parcel of what Jesus does. So Jesus is is. Uh, you know, this is is a spiritual fatherhood, and this would be in the Gospel of John. I mean, this is a long conversation, but um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes from the Father and goes back to the Father. His spirit is given to the the disciples in John chapter 20 in their ordination. He inseminates them, not to be too crass, but um, he blows on them his spirit So he actually begets them. Fathers beget, mothers birth. So he actually is begetting his children when he ordains the 12 apostles. There's a lot of what I just said right there, but that's in the Gospel of John, and it starts in John chapter 1, it goes into John chapter 3, because when Nicodemus and Jesus are talking, Jesus uses a word that can be used two different ways. He uses actually three words that can be used in two different ways, depending on whether you're talking about fathers or mothers. Nicodemus thinks that he is talking about motherhood, but Jesus is talking about fatherhood. So, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, or see the kingdom of God. How can this happen when a man is old? Can he go back into his mother's womb? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are begotten of water in the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That, that's it. Um, so Jesus is talking about spiritual fatherhood. Nicodemus is thinking about motherhood, because their their notions of what it means to be children of God are, are different. Nicodemus is still Jewish. Jesus is Christian, obviously. So um, so his understand. Nicodemus understanding. So anyways, so this whole notion of fatherhood in the Gospel of John is running through the whole gospel, and then when you, you have the, the, the 12 apostles ordained, they're being begotten. So spiritual fatherhood, they've been given this spiritual fatherhood from Jesus, who's received it from the Father himself. Whew. There's a lot there. Sorry, but that's why I go, that, and then that's why the apostle Paul and Timothy would say, husband and one wife, fathers have to get their house in order in order to be good pastors. Because this is all part and parcel of what Jesus is doing in the gospel, especially the gospel of John. Yeah. Uh,
1: I think as women we need to remember that God has given us the gift of, of the desire of submission. And men have the gift or the desire of leadership, of
0: fatherhood. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. See, this is where we have to get to. This is, this is the other side of the coin, Donna, that we have to figure out what this says. So, first of all, everyone has the role of submission. This is Ephesians chapter 5. I know everyone jumps to the end of the chapter 5, but in the beginning of chapter 5, does anyone know what it begins with? Let everyone submit to one another out of reference for Christ. So men and women submit, just FYI. But, but as it relates to, to the, simple, the simple understanding of submission in marriages, uh, wives, you're going to let yourself be loved. That, that's it. And, and husbands love their wives, and wives let their husbands love them. That's what submission in that kind of primarily means. But that's beside the point. And, but leadership, though, you've got to be very careful with that. Because, first of all, how many leaders are there in the Bible? Trick question. Only one. A lot of followers. It's Christian leadership. I can't stand it. Christian followership is the Bible, the way the Bible don't get me started. It's a pet peeve of mine. Ask any of the Concordia College kids; they love to hear that from me. Yes.
1: Well, thinking about leadership also. Peeve <laughs> of mine, and I think a lot of it comes from coming out of college. Yeah, sure.
0: No, um, no. There is a proper way of understanding leadership, but so. It's as,
1: as a student, as a student understanding. <laughs> I came to and it's funny because so my husband works there and works with young men and so we we get a yeah. talking about relationships and boyfriends and girlfriends and what makes a good relationship and it's like i just bang my head against the wall because these girls have this idea like there's this question well is he a leader is he a christian leader and instead, it's like the Christianized version.
0: I don't even know what that means.
1: What you're talking about, like the power struggle.
0: Is he a Christ follower? That's what I would ask first. It's a
1: masked version.
0: Does he love following?
1: culture's version of, like, power.
0: Oh, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that, that's the danger. And that, that's, I'm kind of teasing Donna, by the way. I'm just teasing. You're just women. I'm I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, Donna. No. Husbands. <laughs> that's right. Uh, husbands are, are the primary lovers in relationships. That which, if you understand leadership primarily in love, then I love to hear that. But Aaron's making reference to something different, which is the
1: lack of um, the lack of appreciation for humility, which is Oh, yeah. of a Christ-like yeah.
0: sure service.
1: And and so I feel like a lot of young women, there's a there's a there's a true leadership, and then there's this like Christian mixed with our culture version of leadership. That is actually just power and being a bully, you know. And and
0: it's like well, that's the patriarchy, yeah, right. And are you all these
1: things that just don't matter whatsoever? It's like, are you a are you a, a humble follower of Christ yeah, Who's
0: Christian leave? followership?
1: And instead, these stupid girls are looking at oh. guys. And
0: Come on, there is no such thing as a stupid girl.
1: <laughs> with them, and I am still around them, and they frustrate me. the worldly version of a masked
0: in Christianity. Well, there you go. You said it, I didn't. No, no.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, here's the thing. Um, here, I have a. I, I'm just going to read this quote and if you want to, I have a copy of it, but I'm, I'm going to finish with this. This is, uh, unfortunately, it's from John Paul II, so don't hold that against me. Um... A woman is strong because of her awareness of this entrusting. That means God entrusting himself to her. Strong because of the fact that God entrusts the human being to her. Always in every way, even in the situations of social discrimination in which she may find herself, this awareness and this fundamental vocation speak to women of the dignity which they receive from God himself and this makes them strong and strengthens their vocation. Thus, the perfect woman, Proverbs thirty-one ten, becomes an irreplaceable support and source of spiritual strength for other people who perceive the great energies of her spirit. These perfect women are owed much by their families and sometimes by whole nations. I love that. Holy smokes. Um, yeah, that's uh, from... Muleris Dignitatum, on the vocation and dignity of women. Um, so hopefully we contributed to that notion of strength. And um, next week, we're going to, speaking of strong women, we're going to start a study of Ruth. I think I might have mentioned that. So we're going to start Ruth. So pull out your Bibles and read at least chapter 1. It's very short. Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth. And hopefully that will get us to May. And then, you know what? Maybe Pastor Kendall will do the last three weeks. (laughs) All right, let's pray and get out of here. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.